All right, so uh, lesson 63, <clears throat> uh, the bride is made ready. Last week we uh, introduced a little bit uh, about the bride, and I never know how much I'm going to be able to cover uh, in a lesson because I always get off on a rabbit trail, and uh, I catch the rabbit. All right, so it's okay if you go on a rabbit trail as long as you catch the rabbit. So... Um, but, um, this week we're going to talk about, uh, the complete, completed section here regarding the bride. Uh, then next week we will be talking about, um, the second coming and what I've decided I'm going to do. Um, I know I have said, you know, we're, we're wanting to do all of our teaching from the book revelation, but because the, because the revelation presentation of of the Lord's coming is from a standpoint of the glorious arrival of the Lord and and it's summed up in five six verses and it's over but there's a bunch of other stuff <laughs> that's going on and so uh, what I'm going to be doing next week is I'm going to be putting together some of the other things from Old Testament uh, from some of the things that Jesus taught in Matthew 24, 25, uh, about what is going on as the Lord's returning. Uh, so the whole situation with Armageddon, the, the nations coming against the, uh, the Lord, the, the purpose and the plan of God in bringing all those nations together so that they can be uh, destroyed uh, in a instant. And, uh, and then the coming of the Lord. So, so what we'll do next week is we're going to go and look at some other things uh, from other passages of Scripture. So um, put that down in your notes that you want to be here next week. Okay, so Revelation chapter 19, uh, we got down to verse 7. Uh, we were just talking about verse 7 and then on into verse 8, where it's talking about the bride. And the bride is who? The church. All right, so this is one of those things that you just have to uh, release yourself to see. You know, we're, we're so linear and so compartmentalized that once we see something uh, related in one way, we want to relate it that way every time. And it's not always. So when we talk about the church is the bride... Of Christ, is that right? But isn't the church also his body? Yes. Okay, that gets very confusing. Because don't relate them. They're separate ways of God showing our relationship and the purpose of God. We're sons of God, but we're the bride. And so, okay, well, it's like, ooh, that's what's me up. And uh, we're servants, or slaves um yeah but we're sons and uh, we're a kingdom of priests but we're slaves so see each one of those as a as a separate expression instead of getting so tied up that every place you see it it's got to mean that it doesn't and it's hard to make them all relate one to another because they're individual statements and so when we, when we look at this, we're talking about the bride, we're talking about this aspect of our relationship with God. We are the bride of the Messiah, the Christ. We are. And the church as a unit. But like I shared last week, what happens in a Jewish wedding is not the same as things work in our weddings today it was a whole different situation a wedding was a contract and uh, it was pretty much done you you hope that there was love but it's not about love it's about contract it's sometimes it was sealed by the parents sealed by families and um this is this way it's going to be um 
brides were committed to a, a man sometimes as, the, as young as the age of 12. And that's just the way they did it. Now, they didn't get married at that point. Uh, they didn't get married till they were 15 or so. So, <laughs> you know, that's like, wow, I'm not going to let my daughter. But, you know, that's, it's, it was a whole different world culture. It's a whole different way of, of, of living. Now, one of the things I, we were talking about the bride last week is that when the groom would come to get the bride, he had made the contract, the families had done all these things, they had set up the, the, um, the wedding to take place, and, and the wedding service was not a lot of ritual. The ritual came before and after. The actual wedding service was, here you are, now go consummate your marriage. And that's pretty much the way it operated. And, um, and it was a lot of contract between the fathers and the dealings there. But normally what happened, and something I didn't cover last week, is that uh, the, the groom had prepared a place for his bride. He'd already gone and made a place so that his bride could come. He would have a place set up. Huh. Kind of sounds like John 14. If I go away, I'll come again and receive you. In my father's house are many mansions. Well, that's because many of the families in Israel, the son would build onto the father's house. And so many times their homes were almost like a little town. And so they ended up with like a little square in the center, which would be a place for uh, meetings or festivals or um, family gathering, whatever. And so this was a very common way for the son to be part of the father's house. Now, our culture, it's like, yay, he's married, he's gone. Right, so, but, um, come on, yay, well, you're there. So anyway, it's, it, was, it was all a different way of doing things from our mind. So then when the marriage was to take place, they would come together. There would be the commitment, whatever kind of vows that they had, and we have no record of the type of vows that they made, but there would be a contract, in a sense, a covenant made between the groom and the bride, and then they would go away. Now he's prepared a place, now he takes her away, and that's when the marriage is consummated. And so that is the, that is the marriage union is made. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, everybody's waiting. We're waiting for the party. But the party can't start till the bride and groom come back. And they're gone. And they're gone for one month, two months, three months, one year, year and a half, four years, five years, six years. Seven years, guests are waiting. Some of the guests said, you know what, I'm out of here. I don't know. I don't even know if there was a wedding. It's been so long, I can't even remember. And so the, the guests would wait. No, they wouldn't wait seven years, but it, that's what we're going to do, right? So the bride and groom are going to be away for seven years. And at the end of the seven years, they're going to come back. And those who are expecting them are the guests to the wedding. Now, in the parable that we referred to in Matthew 25, and verse 1 through 13, which is down at the bottom of your first page, the parable of the virgins, all right? The virgins are not the bride. He's not... Marrying ten women. He married one. Took her away. Marriage consummated. They return. Who are the ten? 
the guests. These are the people who were waiting on their Messiah. There were people who heard. Maybe there were people there who said, oh, there's a wedding? Can I come? And people said, sure, join in. We got, we're going to have lots of room. And so people would be expecting. In this parable, who are the people who are waiting? Who are these guests that will be invited? Uh, again, go back to... Um, more toward the top of your, of your first page. And it says, um, verse 9, And the angel said, write this. Everybody there with me? Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's not the bride. That's other people who are invited. Now, in the way that we have covered um, the Lord's appearance and his coming, his appearance, the rapture, his coming, the second coming, right? Seven years in between. The Lord came, took his church away, took his bride off to consummate the marriage, right? To be in their union. Meanwhile, guests are waiting. Who are these guests? Well, the church was taken out. So who are the guests? People who have heard about the, the Messiah. People who have heard about the groom. I want to be in the wedding. Well, come on. What do I have to do? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can be invited to the as a guest. Now, don't. As I said last week, again, I covered this last week, don't see that as second-class Christians. The saints of the tribulation, be they Jew or Gentile, are not second-class Christians. They are believers. They are saints. They're just not the church. The church has a relationship with God that is altogether different than the tribulation saints. They're both going to be with Christ forever. They're both going to be forever in His presence. It's just that the church has a relationship, and the church is everyone who has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ from the day of Pentecost until the rapture. That's the church. After that, it's all the people that get born again during the seven years of the tribulation. They are the guests that get invited. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so these are all these people, millions of people, who are added during this seven years through the witness of believers who had a friend or a relative who was a Christian who suddenly disappeared, had told them about the Lord coming and the rapture, and they said, ah, I don't believe in that stuff. Well, after you disappear... They're suddenly going to say, you know what? I believe. Take me. Uh, you can wait for the rapture all you want. It's already gone. Now you're going to have to wait for what? The second coming. And so in the second coming, all the tribulation states. What's unfortunate is that there are many martyrs. And many of those who get born again, during the time of the tribulation, whether they are Jew or Gentile, are martyred. Many become victims of situations and the chaos and the destruction that's in the, in the earth. That's true. But where are they going to be? Forever in the presence of God. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult and it's a horrible life. So don't wait for the tribulation to get saved. Just piece of advice but some people will because they just can't see the need they will now those who are during the time of the tribulation in a sense they are trimming their lamps they've heard he's coming 
It's been announced he's going to return. Somewhere, sometime in the next few months, he's going to be here. This is, I'm talking about the end of the tribulation. But it goes on for a year. Two years, three years, and some horrible things happening in the earth. But you're existing, and you're holding on, and you're believing. Suddenly, the Lord does appear. And those who have believed are the five wise virgins who are invited in to the marriage supper. Those foolish virgins are the ones who don't get invited in. They refused to believe. And so they are left on the outside and the door is shut. This is the second coming. And here's, here's what's going to happen at the end of the tribulation. We, we see this, this glorious um, truth that all of the unbelievers, all of the unbelievers are removed from the earth at the end of the tribulation. The only ones who go into the tribulation are the believers. Into the what? Into the millennium, sorry. The only ones going into the millennium are believers. Whether they're Jew or Gentile. The Jews have a very special relationship with the Lord during the period of the millennium. When the Lord is physically here on the earth, reigning from Jerusalem, the, the earth is turned into a paradise. A place where there's you know, no death, there's no destruction, there's no rebellion. And so there's this incredible time called the millennium. But all the unbelievers are, in the words of a couple different Bible teachers, raptured into hell at the end of the tribulation. They're removed from off the earth into hell. And the only thing left for them is the final judgment when they will be sent to the lake of fire. Now, there's a difference between the hell and the lake of fire, but another subject. All right? So, all of those foolish virgins, they're not just closed out of the marriage supper. They're sent to hell, which in a sense is the waiting room for the lake of fire. And um, all of those will ultimately be in the lake of fire with the devil, with the Antichrist, with the beast, with the prostitute, with all of those who have rebelled the ten kings and all of those who hated the Lord, all of them consigned, all of the fallen angels consigned to the lake of fire along with all of the dead who were not in Christ. That's a horrible picture. But it's going to be real. I know there are people who like to believe everyone's going to get saved. No, they aren't. And if you read the Bible, you realize there's a lot of people who are not going to get saved. But they have this time. They got a chance now. And so that's why we want to tell people. We want to help people understand. Not, not by threat of eternal hellfire, right? But by the, the hope of living in a glorious relationship with the Lord where you don't have any of those kind of problems and you have a place of security and peace and eternity in the presence of God. Amen. All right? So when we look at this, okay, top of, of your page two, kind of down there. So the bridegroom is Jesus. The bride is the church. The virgins are the, tri the tribulation saints. Right? They are the guests. And so what did it say in verse 9? Blessed are all of those who are invited to the marriage supper. It's going to be good for them. Just as much. It's just that they're not the bride. And so for all eternity, where will the guests be? In the presence of the Lord. 
in heaven. New heaven and new earth, they will forever be with the Lord, just like we will forever be. It's just a different relationship. All right? All of the same blessings of all eternity. Now, there are numerous passages in the New Testament that talk about this marriage identity with Christ. And it's it's spoken of in different ways, but they're these these passages are scattered throughout the New Testament. So I put these down here. Not uh, there may be some I didn't cover everything, but I want us to look at some of these different things it says. Second Corinthians chapter eleven. Paul said, "For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you." That's the marriage contract. It's the marriage contract made. Long, sometimes long before the wedding. I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Now, don't get that virgin confused with the ten virgins. There's one virgin, which is what? The church. And so he said, I, I committed you. You got born again and you are a committed virgin. He's not come back to take you yet. He's going to. He just hasn't yet. But you are betrothed. In a sense, the marriage contract was just as, as um, binding as was the actual wedding. That's what happened with Joseph and Mary. They weren't married yet. But when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, it was with child, and he began to come up with ways. How can I put her away without bringing shame to her and to me? He had to divorce her, and they weren't married yet. And so this is the, the contract. And what Paul is saying is, hey, you are giving yourself over to false doctrine. You're giving yourself over to false teachers. That's what's going on in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 11, and 12. You give yourself over to these other, and Paul goes on in chapter 11 and says, these, these false teachers, they call themselves super apostles. That's the Greek word that's used for them, super apostles. And he says they are huper apostolos, or super apostles, we would say. But they're not. They're actually messengers of Satan masquerading as apostles and they're not and you give yourself over to them it's like you violating your marriage contract that's what he's talking about there so when christians give themselves over to false doctrine they are in a sense violating the contract that has been made paul says this is not the way it was but who's responsible for this? Look at verse 3. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Who's behind that? Satan is. Satan's the one that's behind false doctrine. He's the one that's trying to pull people away. He's the one that's trying to rob them of their identity in Christ and who they belong to. But Paul says, no, I, I, I committed you to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Go to Ephesians chapter 5, a very familiar passage, but here what we want to look at is not the husband-wife relationship of, of humans, but the, the principle behind it, the model behind husband and wife relationship is the relationship between Christ and his church. So here's what he says, husbands love your wives as or in the same manner Christ loved the church. Wow, there's a commitment. There is a, <laughs> wow, that's a, that's a powerful thing to require. Love as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Too often we get into contests of who's giving themselves up for the other. No, take it your responsibility to give yourself up for the, for the other one. 
But what did Christ do? He gave himself up for the church that he might, I want you to catch this phrase, he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. We'll talk a little bit more about that passage. But notice who is sanctifying her. She's not sanctifying herself. He is. And how does Christ sanctify his church? With the washing of what? Water. This is not water baptism. This is the word of God. The word of God cleansing us of things that, oh, I just read a verse that, you know, I shouldn't be living this way. Okay, I'll stop living that way. You know what? Christ just cleansed you. But who's doing this? Christ is doing it to his church, right? So he is sanctifying. Too often we hear people talk about the bride needs to make herself ready. We're going to talk about that verse in just a little bit. She's got to purify herself. She's got to make, make sure she has no spot or blemish or anything. No, he does that. I'll tell you what her making herself ready means in just a few minutes. All right. So, uh, having cleansed her by the washing of the water, so that he might present the church to himself. Now, this is a strange relationship in, in, in a sense in the marriage because that's not the way it worked on earth, but that's the way Christ is going to do it. He's going to purify her. He's going to cleanse her so that he can present her to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. There's so many people that preach from this that you've got to get all the spots out, you've got to get all the blemishes out, you've got to get yourself clean, you better wash yourself because if you're not clean, clean, Jesus won't claim you. That's not what it says. Who's going to be cleansing? Jesus is. He's going to cleanse his own bride with the Word of God. That's another reason why we need to meditate in God's word. We need to keep ourselves within the word of God because the more we meditate in the word, we more the more we see things, it's like, wow, I got to get that in order in my life. I'm doing pretty well with a lot of these, but all of a sudden, here's something. It's like, ooh, I need to work on this part of my life. I'm not going to ask you what, but how many of you have found over the last few years there's some things you need to work on? Don't, don't, don't tell me, but all right. So there are things in our lives that's like, wow, I need to work on that. And some of it is like, yeah, I'll set that off. I'll work on it later. <laughs> Come on. And it's like, yeah, I'm not ready to work on that yet. Uh, yeah, you better. So all of this is an image, but it's kind of a strange image because in an earthly context, the groom does not sanctify his wife. She has to make herself ready. But you see, we're not talking about an earthly context. We're talking about God's work. And you know what? When we came to Christ, none of us were pure. And yet, we're going to be. When he presents himself, the bride to himself, here in, in Revelation 19, when he presents the bride, she's going to be pure. Why? He made her that way. Okay? So, verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So he's doing this because he is nourishing and cherishing. That comes from the Greek word for love. Loving her as Christ loves his church. Verse 32, this mystery is profound. This is another one of those places Paul says, this, this is a great mystery. This is, this is an incredible mystery. There are mysteries, and Paul talks about several of them, but two of them, in Paul's gospel, two of the mysteries Paul calls great. One is the incarnation. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Even the Apostle Paul says that's, that's a great mystery. That's deep. And you could spend hours studying and trying to have a full understanding of the incarnation. You won't reach it. It's a great mystery. So also is this union of Christ 
with his church. We can come to some understanding. We can make some relationships, but we run into problems because we can't get out of our mind the relationship that exists in this earth. We can't see things in his dimension. And so this is a mystery that is great. And I am saying that as it refers to Christ and the church. He's not talking about great as the mystery of marriage. He's talking about great as the mystery as referring to Christ and his church. His bride. It is, it's a profound and deep mystery. And you know what? We're going to get to experience it. We're going to watch it all take place. Even if we can't fully explain it here. So then we come down bottom of page 2, Revelation 9. Or 19 verse 9, or verse 7, 19 verse 7. And the bride has made herself ready. Well, wait a minute. Here it says the bride made herself ready, and up there it says Christ sanctified it. Okay, here's the first thing. Making yourself ready and being sanctified are two different things. It doesn't say she has made herself pure. It doesn't say she has made herself blameless. It doesn't say she has made herself holy. She's made herself ready. How has she made herself ready? Well, first of all, as coming from the world into the church, the first thing you did is you believed. What happened when you believed? What happened? All of your past went where? Away. And you were made new. You are a what? New creation. Not just creature. Right, the Greek word is creation. You're a new creation in Christ. Something that never existed before. And so we're a new creation in Christ. Old things, gone. All things made new. Not only that, Ephesians 4.24 says, not only that, it says, and we were created in righteousness and holiness, put on the new man which after Christ is created in righteousness and true holiness. This new creation, when you got born again, you became a new creation, and that new creation, that inner man, right? Put on the inner man, the new man. Put that on because it's created in righteousness and true holiness. It, it's not even just holiness, which is... It's enough, but it's true holiness, absolute. And this is the way, this is what Christ has done to everyone who believes. It's not just to those who have been in the word long enough, you know, where, yeah, I'm, I'm righteous and truly holy. So is the youngest believer who in his, in his physical life, earthly life, has left nothing behind. He just got born again. But he's still a new creation. I'm not going to go into it, but he's also been made a son with all privileges of authority. Yeah, but he's like, that's like giving the keys to, to you know, to, to your Lamborghini to a 12-year-old. No, don't do that. Yeah. Every new believer is a full son, given full rights of authority. Wow, that's powerful. And it's not because you made yourself that way. This is how God has made us. So this, this idea is it's not what the bride has done to make herself pure or righteous, or holy. God did all of that. God did all those things to make you righteous, and holy, and pure, and just, and, and sanctify you, and separating you from the world. But there are things that she has made herself ready. How has she made her? Look at verse 8. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds 
of the sons. She has made herself pure with righteous deeds. Not she did righteous deeds and made herself pure. She has been made pure by who? Who made her pure? And now she has done what? Righteous deeds. I want you to turn to uh, Philippians. I didn't put it in here. I meant to. Uh, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And verse. I think it's verse 9, 10. Philippians 2 and verse 12. Sorry, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, Philippians 2, 12, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What does it say? Work out your own salvation. Or you better, you better get it worked out. You better make it, you know, it's like working out a math problem. No, it's not. The Greek word work out means bring what's inside to the outside. Bring what's inside to the outside. Where's your salvation? When you get born again, it's where? In you. Bring it to the outside. Let people see it. Let it be known. As Pastor Jeff talked to us last week, make, make it known by what? Being full of the Spirit. Full of joy. Full of faith. Full of grace. That's the, those are the things that we should be doing. We should bring to the outside. No different than what Paul said in Ephesians 4.24. Put on the new man, which in Christ is created in righteousness and true holiness. Bring what's on the inside to the outside. And so that's what the church has done. Who made her pure? Christ. Who made her blameless? Christ. Who made her holy? Christ, what's she to do? Righteous deeds. Now do something with what you have. And so that's what he says in verse 13. Not only do you do, you do those things, not only do you work it out, but it says in verse 13, For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work His good pleasure. God is not only putting the ability... To work his good pleasure, he's putting the want to in there. Do you ever find yourself wanting to do things that you think, well, I never knew I'd going to want to do that. You know, wanting to, the willing to, to serve, the willing to give, the willing to sacrifice of yourself, the willing to set aside these things in your life and to give them to something else. You say, where did that come from? From within. Why? Because... Christ has made you pure, holy, and blameless. And now you are wanting to bring out what's on the inside. So this bride has done what? She has now performed righteous deeds. Where do these righteous deeds that you're doing coming from? If you witness to someone, if you give to someone, if you bless someone, if you help someone, if you pray for other people, if you lift them up, if you humble yourself before them in a way to serve them or to give to them. Where, where's that, where are those righteous deeds coming from? Inside. Now, those righteous deeds don't make you holy. Here it is. They show that you are. You're separate. That's what holy means, separate. Different. The world needs to see that we're different. Again, Pastor, Pastor Jeff, this last week, talking about Stephen. He was different. So were the other seven that they chose, or six that they chose. Go find these people. They're full of faith and full of power. They're full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. How, do, how are you going to find those people? They're already out there. They're doing things. They're showing those deeds that are coming from the inside. And that's what this bride has done. She has made herself ready with her righteous deeds. What Christ did for her, 
She is now turned into things. So when we go to heaven, what goes with us? All the righteous deeds which we have done. All right. Look at this. Go to the bottom of page 2. Revelation 21 and verse 2. Which we'll be coming to in a few weeks. Revelation 21 and verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Listen. Prepared as a bride ordained or adorned for her husband. Prepared. In the Greek language, what that means is somebody did this to her. She didn't prepare herself. Yeah, but 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 the verse that we're looking at in 19.7 says she made herself ready. Not by making herself pure, not by making herself holy, not by making herself righteous. She prepared herself or she made herself ready with righteous deeds because she had been prepared and adorned for her husband. Someone did that to her. Again, going back to top of page 3, Ephesians chapter 5, that he might sanctify, having cleansed her. Top of your page 3. He might sanctify, having cleansed her. Who did that? Christ did. She didn't cleanse herself. Someone did that to her. Now, technically, can you baptize yourself? Yeah, you go out into the river and you dunk yourself. I guess you could say, yeah, I baptize myself. But the Greek idea is someone did it for you. Why? Because it's like you dying and then someone raising you up from the dead. The water is like the grave. You're buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Someone has to do that to you. Dead people can't raise themselves up. They need someone else to do it. And so we have that beautiful picture. So also the bride can't make herself pure. I got nothing to make myself pure with. But he can. And he can do in us. And then I can do with what he has given me. I can commit or do righteous deeds because he has washed me. Why does he do this? Verse 27, so that he might present that he might that she might be holy and without blemish. I want you to notice those words I kind of put in bold type there. That he might sanctify, so that he might present, that she might be. All of those are in a Greek tense which means the rest of what's going to happen can't take place if this doesn't take place. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her. She couldn't be sanctified if he didn't cleanse her. Right? And so that's what it means. So that he might present. He can't present her if she's not pure. Who's going to make her pure? He is. Without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. Why is he going to do this? So that she might be holy with him. She can't be that without him doing these things. And so the whole context is someone is doing this for her so that the end result will take place. Now there's some great passages. I put down John 13.10. Whereas Jesus came to wash the disciples' feet. He came to Peter. What did Peter say? Oh, you're never going to wash my feet. And then Jesus said, well, if I don't wash your feet, you got no part with me. And he said, all right, dump the bucket on me, my head, every part of me, my hands, every part. Wash me complete, Jesus. I had to be shaking his head, Peter. What did he say? The one who's bathed does not need to wash except his feet, but is completely clean. And here's what Jesus said, and you are clean. He was speaking this, in a sense, prophetically, concerning what was going to take place with these disciples when they believed after the resurrection. You are clean. You know what the Lord says to you? You are clean. That's what it means when it says we've been washed in the blood. The Greek word washed is the same Greek word for made clean or freed. 
You've been freed by the blood. You've been made clean by the blood. You've been washed in the blood. And it's all it has to do with, with a release of everything that was holding on to you. You've been made clean. And it's such a powerful way of God communicating to us. He did this. He did this. So that we would be able to do righteous deeds. So that we could do what? Be his bride. So that we could be what? Rewarded for the righteous deeds that we have done. And that he be glorified. Look at Jude 24 and 25. To him, Jude 24, to him who is able. Who is able? He is. To him. And down in verse 25, the him is identified, the only God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, yeah, that's the him. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Who's able to do that? He is. He's able to keep me from stumbling. He is able to keep me, or to present me, sorry, to present me, what? Blameless. And so he has that power. Why? Because he is the only God, Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And to him be the glory, majesty. See, if you cleanse yourself, to you be the glory. If you've made yourself pure, to you be the benefit. You're the one. Look at me. Look at what I've done. You haven't done so well. Me, I've done great. And so that's the whole premise. People think it's, it's humility. It's not. It's pride. It's arrogance. Salvation by works. You cleansing yourself is pride that keeps us from receiving the full benefit. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Paul said, and I am sure of this, that the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So who is the one that began a great work in you? Jesus Christ. And who's going to complete it? He is. No, i got to complete it. You know, the bride's got to wash her robes. Better get it out there. Better get your robes to the dry cleaners. You know, you better get that dress ready. You know, because if you're not, he's going to cleanse me. He's going to do this. He began it. I couldn't begin it because I was dead. Not much I could do for myself. He began it. He's going to finish it. Hebrews 7.25 Consequently, or as a conclusion, He is able to save to the uttermost. The word uttermost, how many, how many times do we use that in our conversation every day? Not too often. You know, to the uttermost. It's like, you know, I'm going to kick you to the uttermost, right? So, uh, what, what the world is an uttermost? Well, in the Greek language, the word means all the way to the goal. All the way to the goal. Now, I'm a football fan, so all the way to the goal is that Alabama running back and gets runs all the way to the goal. Okay. So, Jeff is... Yeah, Jeff's an Alabama fan, and, and people don't like me. So anyway, um, that's the way that God wants it. He's going to take us all the way to the end. He's going to carry us. He is the one who's able to save us all the way to the end. Yeah, he might lose you along the way. No, he's not going to lose me along the way. Well, I might... I might lose myself. <laughs> you know, I could, I could jump out of the basket or whatever, you know, and, and not get all the way in it. No, listen to this. He is able to save those who draw near to God through him. That's coming to Christ through salvation. Listen to this. Because or since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, you're going to be there. You're going to make it all the way to the goal because he's ever making intercession. He's the one who is always making intercession for you. 
And the way I got this one time as I was meditating on this is, listen, you can't mess it up. He is, he's interceding against your own inclinations to failure. I just, I don't think I can get there. Jesus will get you there. If it was up to me, I had lost myself. I can't tell you how many times. And so there are people that teach it that way. You know, you were, you were saved yesterday, but you already saved today. That's because that, they made it a matter of me. It can't be a matter of me. Because if it is, I'm no better than back in the law. I'm actually worse. <laughs> because at least in the law, they had something to look forward to. Crosses behind us. And if that didn't help us, there ain't nothing to help us. I know, that's not good English, but it worked. All right. There's nothing to help us. So, what's he going to do? Not only has he done this for us, listen to Revelation 19, verse 8. For he has dressed them, they have appeared, right? For the, right, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Their righteous deeds. Where do these deeds come from? Within you. They come from the grace of God working on the inside of you. Just as much as God has cleansed you, he's also put his ability to do inside of you. His ability to work. His ability to, uh, to bless, to minister, to serve. God puts those graces within us. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, or precious stone, the foundation is your salvation. If anyone builds on that wood, hay, or stubble, each one's work will become manifest. For the day, that's the second coming, the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. That's the judgment that comes at the second coming. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now, some people are going to be tested for their life. We read that. We'll come to that in chapter 20 of Revelation. And if they have not accepted Christ, then their name is not in the book. But this is works, things that you have done. And Paul makes a statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, every everyone's works will be judged. Uh... Now, that's not everyone. It's everyone's works. As believers, our works are going to be judged. Whether good or bad. Or here, whether gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, or stubble. So if the fire is put to gold, silver, and precious stones, what's going to happen? Nothing. In fact, they're purified. Right? All the unrighteous stuff goes, goes away. But if it's wood, hay, or stubble, okay, that's not so good. Because they won't stand. But listen to what he says. Fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he receives a reward. That's the fine linen. That's the righteous deeds. Now, have we done righteous deeds? I'm asking every one of us, have we done righteous deeds? Have we done some that are not so righteous? All right. The righteous deeds endure. And in other places, they're referred to as crowns, they're referred to as jewels, whatever. But in Revelation 19, they're referred to as her, her, uh, her wedding gown, dressed in fine linen, bright and pure, which are the righteous deeds of the saints. And so our righteous deeds in that imagery comes out as this beautiful garment that we will be wearing. If anyone's work is burned, you suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but as through fire. So, it's not going to destroy the person, it's just going to destroy the works. 
And yet, when we get to heaven, the righteous deeds are what we want to have, showing what we have done in his name. All right, I'm going to take just a few minutes to finish this up because really it's just one last passage. Um, verse uh, 10 and uh, verse 10, basically the end of verse 9 and then verse 10, bottom of page 3. He said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said, you must not do that, for I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. These are the true words of God. Well, in a sense, isn't the Bible full of the true words of God? I mean, it's like, if God said it, aren't, aren't they true? Yes. But this is, this is not making, like, these are the true words. The rest of the book is not. <laughs> these are the true words. No, it's, it's, it's just drawing attention to the validity of what has been said about the bride. Now, we added a whole bunch of other verses, but the basic verses in 7 through and 8 are pretty brief. Marriage supper of the Lamb, dressed in fine linen, bright and pure, and the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That's it. That's, that's what it says. Now, what we need to do is see that the reason that the angel is making these statements, these words are the true words of God. Why? Because this is a unique thing. What did Paul say about marriage? It's a great mystery. This Christ and the church thing is a great mystery. And so he's just made some statements. And, and in order to understand Christ and his church, you have to search through all kinds of passages in the New Testament. Because there's not one place where Paul sits down and says, okay, this is how it works. He doesn't sit down. He doesn't explain it here. He just makes the statements. The marriage supper of the lamb, the da-da-da-da, blah, blah, blah. And so there it is. These are the true words of God. Now, first of all, understand that when John wrote this, how many people had a Bible? No one. So, thank God we've got Bibles. We can go back and look these things up. They couldn't. They just had to accept that this was a true statement. That these things were going to be. And in a sense, like I said last week, this was true even though the Bible was collected in the 4th century and was, was, quote, available to people from the 4th through the 1500s is the 16th century. I get that messed up. Thank you. Is, is that right? Okay. From the 4th through the 6th for 1,200 years, right? Yet, these things are still true. Now, did the church get it awkward during those, that time? Oh, yeah. I'm not going into the church history of the time between the 400s and the Reformation, but the church got it messed up. I mean, really bad. To the place that it's still messed up in a lot of people's thinking today. And a misunderstanding of all that. But what Christ just said here are the true words of God. Even though it's difficult to understand, even though it's a unique teaching in the sense that it's it's got scattered verses here and there that you have to put together to build the whole imagery i i did some there and i hope i didn't get it too confusing but the point being there's a lot that the scripture says it's just that you've got to look for it but you know what it's still the true word of god it's the true word of god and all God has to do is say it. Well, but i got to find three or four other scriptures that say the same thing. No, you don't. The Bible doesn't say in order to believe God, we have to find it in two or three places. It says if someone comes to trial and they're going to be accused, you got to find two or three witnesses. 
The Bible never says we have to have two or three verses to substantiate. If God says it one time, that's it. He never has to say it again. One time, it's the true word of God. And so we have this testimony. So John's overwhelmed with this. He falls at the feet of this one to worship him. And the person says, don't worship me. Worship God. I'm a fellow servant with you. The Greek word is fellow slave. I am a fellow slave with you. Soon doulos. And I'm, I'm, I'm in a different category, but I'm still a slave. He was an angel. John is a man. Different category, but both slaves of God. Why? Because saints and angels, all servants, slaves of God. He's the master. He makes the rules. He makes the statements. He sets the pattern we follow. And the idea behind a slave is I don't have a will of my own. That's, that's the basic idea behind a slave. I don't have a will of my own. I can't do what I want. I need to do what the master wants me to do. Isn't that a beautiful picture of our relationship with Christ? I do what he wants me to do. I don't tell him what I'm going to do. He tells me what he wants me to do. And so how am I going to find that out? How am I going to find out what he wants me to do? Uh, read the Bible. Yeah. Read the Word. You can pray. You can pray. But as you pray, you better check it out with the Word of God. Right? Go back and find out, is that what the Word of God really says? Is that what the Scriptures say? Because there's a lot of people who prayed and think God told them to do some really strange things. Check it out. What does he say at the end of that whole thing? The statement is, worship God. Now the final statement he makes, the testimony of Jesus, is the spirit of prophecy. And what, what he simply means by that statement is the very central element of prophecy is to testify about Jesus Christ. That's what that means. If prophecy does not direct you to Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel, it's not of God. There's all kinds of people today with all kinds of prophecies, and you know what? They're like Jeremiah chapter 29, or 23, excuse me. Jeremiah 23, where God says, the prophets stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, and the Lord has not said. It's easy to say, thus saith the Lord. I just said it. But just because I throw that on the end of a statement doesn't make it true. Because the true spirit of prophecy, the very essence of prophecy, the very heart of prophecy is to testify about Jesus Christ. If it doesn't direct people to Christ, it is not from God. And so that's the way that we understand that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit is the very element of prophecy. Why is this all important? Because the very next thing that's going to take place is a statement about the coming of the Lord. And the Lord is going to descend with all his saints and angels and he's coming and he will establish his way upon this earth. And the church hearing this they have gone now through 15 chapters of destruction and devastation and suffering and all these things that, John, you have gone through it with me. Yes. Right? And thank you, dear. And, um, you know, we have, we have seen so much destruction and sorrow and uh, confusion and all those things. It seemed like the devil's the one who's ruling. No, he's not. Because all of this is a testimony to who? Jesus Christ. 
The very element of the book of Revelation is it's the revelation of, Jesus tell me, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Amen. <coughs> Pardon me. So, let's have coffee here. So as we come to the end of this section, <clears throat> now next week, like I said, I'm going to go back and do some Old Testament passages and some New Testament that I got to bring in to help us understand the, the impact of the second coming. And so there are things, they're not here in Revelation. <clears throat> so we have to look other places to find the full power of that. So let me pray and uh, we'll be done. Father, we thank you.